Welcome to the Net Positive Podcast, a series of podcasts on clean energy and the environment. The Net Positive is about crafting healthy communities and a sustainable world. These explorations are designed to educate and inspire. That's when we get action. I am your host, Ted Flanagan. In this episode of the Net Positive Podcast, we'll explore the enormous health implications of cooking smoke in the developing world with Michael Shepard. Michael and I worked together at Rocky Mountain Institute some years ago and have been friends ever since. Hey, Michael. Hello, Ted. There you are. Hey. Nice. You're in Boulder, huh? Yes. Finally got home. It feels good. Michael, welcome to the Net Positive. And, and thank you so much for uh, scheduling this and taking the time. And, and I think more so for uh, raising my awareness and uh, others' awareness about this issue. But, uh, you know, before we dive in, uh, I was thinking back to when we met. And I think maybe it was 1989. I think it was even earlier than that. I came, yeah, I came to work there in 88, uh, and we had met a couple of years earlier and had been having conversations for a while about hooking up and, and working together. Yeah, and it, and it was quite relevant in, in that I think Meredith, your first child, was, was a baby at that point. That's right. That's right. Yeah, well, yeah, she was certainly. born in 1987, and uh, I remember I was coming out to visit you in Old Snowmass and... and uh, hanging out with Amory and him uh, wooing us to come move and join your Motley crew uh, in trying to save the world with energy efficiency. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you, I'm really glad you did. And so you stayed, I moved on from Rocky Mountain Institute. You stayed and, and then founded eSource, uh, the consulting group that ultimately spun off. And you ran that for how many years? Yeah, I was in a senior role there for, gosh, um, I guess we spun it out of RMI and moved it down to Boulder in 1992. And I finally exited it uh, two years in 2019. So you can do the math. Um, yeah. 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 And, and along the way, one thing I admired about you is you you sort of struck out and went to different parts of the world and and had a couple different sabbatical periods there. Absolutely. Uh, every... Every excuse we could find to take the family abroad and widen all of our horizons, we yeah. grabbed it. And uh, I'm, I feel very blessed for that. And, and uh, you know, it used, used the opportunity to uh, check in with some of the cool energy innovations going on in different countries around the world as well. So, yeah, it was a, been a great, it's been a good ride. Yeah, well, congratulations. And then, and then Meredith um, took you to Rwanda. How did she get there? Meredith is our oldest child. She, uh, after we'd lived abroad a couple of times, both our kids had um, very global perspectives. So she took a gap year after high school, uh, which was not as trendy then as it is now, and uh, did a number of, went to a number of places back to where we'd lived in England and went 
trekking in Nepal and all kinds of things, but she wanted to volunteer somewhere. She was interested in Africa and being just out of high school, it turns out that it's really hard to be, get an internship if you're not even a college kid yet. So she got turned down by a lot of places and found this one outfit where she could go and volunteer at an orphanage in the boonies of Rwanda. And when she called me and said, dad, I'm going to Rwanda, I gasped and quickly Googled the State Department website. And to my delight, <laughs> there was this text saying, Rwanda is one of the safest places in Africa. So I calmed down and I said, okay, honey, that's great. Have a wonderful time in Rwanda. And she went, she had an eye-opening experience dealing with, I mean, real deep, deep poverty. Um, and this was probably 2008-ish, somewhere in there. So still close enough to the Rwanda genocide of 1994 that the, the scars were still pretty fresh. And uh, lots of orphans um, that needed support. And she got thrown into the middle of that, loved the place, decided to go back again after her freshman year of college, got a gig teaching in a primary school in Kigali, the capital. And our family went and visited her that summer and we got the bug. We liked the place, we liked the people. She'd met this young man who, a Rwandan guy who turned out eventually to become her husband. And um, so things were all um, rolling and we, we thought, well, this is a nice place. And then when she did hook up with this fellow, we went over to meet his family and it was just uh, suddenly we had a much larger family. <laughs> Isn't that great? Isn't yeah. that great? Yeah. So then when, so fast forward a little bit, that when did the cooking, when did you really become sort of cognizant of this, this huge issue that we want to talk about, which is the, the exposure to cooking smoke that yeah. so world's people, but disproportionate, obviously in Africa and other developing countries. are. Yeah. I mean, I, I had been aware of this problem all my career, but my career was focused on solving energy challenges in the first world. And I'd always had an itch to do something in the developing world. So once my daughter married this Rwandan guy, John, and uh, we started going over there and Susan, my wife, who, you know, Ted had been a preschool and a kindergarten teacher and loves nothing more than uh, children's art is her passion. And so she got herself a volunteer gig at an orphanage, do, running an art program at an orphanage in Rwanda. And I was phasing out of my day job with eSource. Uh, we had the flexibility to take fairly long trips. So we would go over there a couple times a year for like two months at a time um, with suitcases just filled to the brim with art supplies and, uh, you know, a few changes of underwear. And uh, after a couple of those trips of, of going there and, and Susan's having all of this stuff to do working with the orphanage and me not having that much to do, I said, hey, I, I got to find something to do over here. And one of my staffers at eSource had been working in East Africa, uh, not a Peace Corps, but kind of like that, and had come home and had done a slideshow about his experience. And one of his last gigs had been working with a clean cooking firm, actually based in Fort Collins, Colorado, called EnviroFit. And he'd helped stand up uh, one of the production facilities, factories outside of Nairobi. And 
So I thought, wow, I'm going to check in on with those guys. And I went up to Fort Collins and I thought about getting the distributorship for Rwanda, for EnviroFit and bringing those stoves to Rwanda. And um, got down the road in talking about this, had my son-in-law's sister in Rwanda do a little market research for us to gauge whether she thought these particular stoves would sell. She thought the market was already pretty crowded with alternative stoves that weren't as good, but were a lot less costly. So she wasn't convinced that people would buy a, a really quite good $15 to $20 stove when they could get kind of sort of good ones for five bucks. So sadly, I, I kind of bailed on, on that particular path. But in my despondence, I'm sitting there and I'm Googling around clean cooking, Rwanda, blah, blah, blah. And I stumble on the website of this outfit called Indian Yeri. And I sent an email to the general mailbox. And about four months later, I got a response and uh, got hooked up with the fellow who had founded this company who coincidentally had lived three blocks from me in Boulder, Colorado for 20 years, but we had never known each other. So on my next trip to Rwanda, I hooked up with him. And in fact, my first conversation with him was a Skype call from Rick Heady's house in Old Snowmass, Colorado, uh, on a ski whip, ski weekend up in the mountains. So uh, anyway, that's, that's kind of how it happened, uh, the initial connection. And then when I went to meet with Eric in Rwanda on our next trip, we hit it off immediately. And I said, Hey, I, I'd love to help. Uh, I don't need a job. And here's my background. He said, well, there's a table and a desk and a chair. Come on over. So I started just volunteering my time and it went from there. Yeah. You know, let's, let's circle back or let's, let's double back yeah. and talk about the problem. And then Indian Yeri's, I think it sounded like a, a great model. Yeah. Scale. And then kind of how to make it scale. So you're you're so eloquent. I mean, I I heard your your podcast. It's on your website, as we talked about. I did a little bit of reading, and just uh, I read your I read your three minute piece uh, right on the website also. And the magnitude of the problem is astounding to me. The the, expo- the this issue, the exposure to to cooking to cooking smoke. Can, can you just? I mean, at one point you talked about it in terms of the number of cigarettes it would be like smoking a day. I mean, it was just, it's horrifying. Yeah, I mean, it's basically one in two humans, roughly. Half the, half the human population, about 4 billion people, do not have full access to clean ways of cooking their food. And, you know, there's, that includes the desperately poor rural villages that are just cooking with sticks and balancing a pot on some rocks. It includes more wealthy people in the cities who primarily cook with charcoal, but often in pretty poorly ventilated conditions. And some of these people may even be wealthy enough that they have an electric hookup or can afford a little bit of propane or LPG, but still do the majority of their cooking using solid biomass and are exposed to really unhealthy levels of smoke. So that's about half the global population. Half of the biomass that you were, we're talking wood. We're talking sticks. We're talking charcoal made from wood. In some really rural areas, we're talking maybe dried animal dung. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some cases, maybe some crop wastes. Um, but that's that's how most of the world. 
no, not most, half of the world cooks. Yeah. Yeah. I think you said, I think you said in, the, in the, your other podcast or your podcast that, you know, even though many of these people are collecting firewood, carrying cell phones, their, their cooking is in this, in the, in the stone ages, you know, they're, they're, yeah. I mean, the developing world has leapfrogged the whole landline thing, right? I mean, they've got this 21st century thing dialed in. They've got cell phones in their pockets. They do all of their financial transactions on it. They gather information through it. They communicate. So they're very much in the modern world, but their cooking options are very, very primitive. And they they would love something better. It's not like they do it because it's romantic. Uh, you know, it's what they have. It's what's available and affordable to them. Right. And then, and then what are the, the impacts or health, right? Well, I think that the health part of this deserves more attention than it has received. So health and climate impacts and, de- and degradation of forests um, are all impacts, incredible gender inequities, time poverty. But just to focus in on the health, there's a whole slew of diseases that are triggered by exposure to breathing cooking smoke. And it turns out that this is so ubiquitous that this is one of the biggest killers. It's the largest source of disease and death in the developing world. That's an environmental risk factor. Um, high blood pressure is edges it out. But but you know, in terms of um, what we think of as the problems that people in those places face, and I don't want to trivialize those other problems, like horrible diseases like malaria and tuberculosis. And and uh, HIV and uh, and dysentery caused by lack of access to clean drinking water and and even lack of food. Uh, these are all very very real problems. But it turns out that this is even bigger and uh, and invisible to those of us in the West. You know, right. if you go to a cocktail party and. Uh, Boulder, Colorado, or Southern California, and you're chatting about people and they ask them, what's the biggest problem these folks face in, in the global South? I can guarantee you nobody's going to say exposure to cooking smoke. Right, right, right. And, and then- it kills, it kills, pre, there's over 4 million premature deaths a year caused by exposure to cooking smoke, which is more than HIV, malaria and tuberculosis combined. It's a big deal. It's a really, really, really big deal. And, and then you mentioned this term time poverty, which I, had, I hadn't heard before, but this whole notion that all this time that's being spent uh, primarily by women and children, I guess, I guess gathering, gathering fuel wood and cooking could be hours and hours every day that, that obviously could be used in education and up, uplifting their society in other ways. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it falls to the women and kids uh, in the countryside to gather fuel. And uh, yeah, uh, mom could be um, engaging in some money-making activities, helping the kids with homework, doing, uh, starting a small business, growing a few more rows of crops, uh, all kinds of things, putting her feet up and just kicking back, you know, but instead there's this, this drain of hours a day. Uh, for people in the countryside who are gathering fuel. Um, It's not as pronounced in urban areas where people tend to buy fuel. Um, They walk down to the corner and they buy a little, 
you know, handful of charcoal or whatever to cook the next meal or two. But uh, yeah, time poverty and then the exposure to violence, unfortunately, that women and kids face in some areas when they go out and gather fuel is a whole other story that could be its own episode. Oh, this is uh, awful. Absolutely, absolutely awful. And I guess, um, Michael, the there have been attempts. Uh, NGOs have been in, in Africa and other developing countries bringing forth um, cooking solutions. I, I know even, I remember even some of the solar box cookers that were, was it Robert Metcalf that was pr promoting those? Yeah, years yeah. Ago? yeah. But, but I think, you know, there's been lots of efforts. And one thing that you educated me about was that there's there's these different tiers of, of quality of cook stoves. I guess the, the lesser, the better the tier, the, the more clean they burn. And the prior efforts were well-intentioned, but really didn't didn't address this health issue just because you just didn't you just didn't get enough of the pollutants out of the air. I know I've botched that, but no, you've you've nailed it. Uh, yeah, the the baseline levels of exposure are so high that even if you get a quote advanced or quote improved stove that maybe cuts the level of smoke in half or even two thirds, mm -hmm. that doesn't move the needle on the health outcomes because the 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 health outcomes are not a linear response to exposure. You've just got to reduce exposure levels by over 90% to really dramatically reduce the risk of all of these diseases that people get. Right. And I think okay. you, you made that clear to me when we started talking, you started talking about cigarettes. A couple of years ago, I was in a little hut in Kenya and yeah. in the little cooking area and in this very low hut, I'm, Way, way too tall and tiny little windows in this mud and dung hut. And here's this cooking area just reeked of smoke. It was like being in a smoke sauna. And I just thought, could this possibly be that these people would sit in here uh, when the meal was being cooked? And I think the answer is yes. And, and you would say that that might be the equivalent of smoking, you know, 400 cigarettes a day. Uh, so, it's it's like the equivalent of the second hand smoke of say four hundred cigarettes an hour in that little hut. Four hundred cigarettes, you know, yeah. And so, um, and you think about you if you remember your high school geometry. Well, guess what the <laughs> the lung area, the surface area of the lung of a young child who's hanging out by mom's skirts, right in front of that smoke. That's a tiny little lung, and it's not that hard to completely clog it up with this gunk, which is why this is the greatest cause of death of kids under five on the planet. And then, and by extension, you would say that that bringing in an advanced stove that's half that's half as good or twice as twice as good, however you want to put it, it ain't enough. It, it nowhere near enough. It isn't. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of, not enough resources have gone into solving this problem, but people have been trying, as you say, for decades to solve it. But for a lot of obvious reasons, they've tended to focus on artisanal solutions that could be made by local craftspeople or made by at home out of mud and bricks and so on, because people can afford it. They can fix it when it breaks. Um, but it does and that does reduce the need for fuel. It reduces the time poverty because they don't have to go out and gather as much fuel. It helps the climate by cutting the amount of wood that's burned. But 
it's just another inconvenient truth, right? That unless you reduce the smoke exposure by well over 90%, you're not gonna solve the health problem. And so this has been looked at primarily through the lens of environment for decades. And people have kind of thumped themselves on the chest and cheered and said, look, we've reduced the amount of fuel they need by half. We've cut it in half. That saves the forests. It helps the climate. All true. And you and I are old tree-hugging enviros. So we would celebrate that too. But the problem is there's this other impact that was really not being considered really until the last 15 years or so in a big way. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's hard. Yeah, well put. And, and I guess the ultimate would be, uh, you know, solar powered uh, electric cooking, right? That's the holy grail, man. You know, some renewably generated electricity and an induction cooktop in every hut in Kenya. Right. And I pray that someday we will get there. And there's some really cool work going on with electric pressure cookers, super insulated pressure cookers that um, can be, uh, can have a battery. And so you could even run them in off, you know, away from the power grid and have solar and batteries and so on. But um, for the next few decades, um, we're not going to get that. We need multiple solutions that are really, really clean. Right. And electricity will be renewably generated electricity would be the be all end all holy grail, but it's going to take us quite a while to get there. Right. Absolutely. And, and now that leads us to gasification uh, of wood pellets, which is, yeah. which is the technology that you've gotten excited about. And it's the technology that was it Eric Reynolds at Indian Dairy was, was promoting as well. That's right. Yeah. And, and I guess the, 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 the crux is uh, you got a couple things. You, you want to come up with a stove that it will be culturally accepted. And, and this fits that bill because it's got a flame and, and, uh, and you also want something that's you know, highly efficient and, and non-polluting. And, and the rub is that that costs a little bit more money, right? There's that old marginal cost that comes around the, the bend. Uh, but talk about the gasification and, and what that accomplishes. So, yeah, the, really the question is, is, all right, what do people in the global south have access to? They have access to sticks and wood. So is there a way to burn biomass, solid biomass, sticks, crop residues, uh, cleanly enough that you don't poison people with the smoke. And it turns out that the, the, the cleanest way to do that is to gasify the fuel. And what happens in gasification is that essentially the fuel gets heated and it drives off a bunch of combustible, volatile, organic compounds and gases that those gases then get burned. Uh, and so it's almost like cooking with gas. And these, these little stoves have a fan that's powered by a battery that can be either plugged into a grid outlet or driven by a, a solar panel that charges the battery. And, uh, and so it turns out that you can dramatically cut the emissions by using this technology, especially if you standardize the fuel. Because if you just put random sticks, fat ones, skinny ones, wet ones, dry ones in there, you're not going to get a very clean result. But if you take the time and expense of processing that biomass into pellets, just like those of us in the West are very familiar with pellet stoves, um, 
then you have something that's very consistent form factor, consistent moisture content, and these stoves can be really tuned to really shine in burning that standardized kind of fuel. And then you're looking at a situation where you can actually stick one of these stoves or two or three of them in a pretty small hut, um, even if there's not a chimney and even if there's not very good ventilation and cook your meals with uh, an acceptable level of pollutant exposure. It's not zero, but it's a heck of a lot better than what they've been doing. Right. And then I thought it was so interesting, this whole notion that since the, since the, now the pellets are going to cost a little bit more than charcoal or what you otherwise might buy, but because the stove is so efficient, you're using so far fewer pellets that it's actually created a savings stream there that I think Eric Reynolds turned around into some sort of a model where he was giving people these stoves uh, and, and basically figured out a kind of a win-win there. As we, you and I learned long ago, Ted, in the energy efficiency game, people respond to their pocketbook. Uh, and if it's going to save them money, that's going to be a big driver. So Eric came up with this brilliant model of applying uh, kind of a pay-go model that's been pioneered in solar PV uh, all over the world uh, to cooking and saying, well, okay, why don't I get in the pellet fuel cooking business and if people are buying my fuel, I'll lease them the technology, in this case, a gasifying stove or two for free. And as you said, the stoves are so efficient, the user doesn't need to buy that much fuel. So they're spending 20 to 30% less each month on fuel than they had been when they were buying charcoal. So they love it from day one because it's cash flow positive from day one just like signing up for one of these companies to come slap PV panels on your roof, they guarantee you cash flow positive from day one. Same concept, just applied to cooking in the developing world. But now he's, so, but he's, he's recouping the cost. You, I think those units are around $75, those little cooking units. Yeah. He's, he's, stoves, recovering, he's recovering that in his fees for the pellets. Yeah. There's two main revenue streams. There's the pellet sales and the margins on that are quite good. Um, even if you're selling it, for, you know, so that the monthly outlay from the consumer is 25 or 30% less than what they were spending on charcoal. Um, doing this at scale, you can do that and have a really strong margin. And then you layer some icing on top of that with carbon credit revenue. And so at scale, this is potentially quite a profitable business model. But I keep saying this word at scale because just like running an electric utility, you can't do it at small scale for a profit. You got to get big enough. Right. And I think what, what happened with Indian Yeri, if I understand the story correctly, is they got about 6,000 households subscribed. But in order to have that pellet plant, that infrastructure, and in order to deliver this model, you needed more like 100,000 households. Yeah. Uh, I think there's... Um, a range depending on how lean you run the organization and how many uh, other activities you're trying to engage in. But I'd say you need at least 30,000 and possibly as many as 100,000 households to make one of these businesses viable. So you have to get raise enough capital to build a big enough pellet factory and have enough of a biomass supply chain to build make the pellets for that many households to get to the point where you'd be uh, profitable. And as you scale beyond that, 
it should get to be really healthy margins. Right. And, and where do you start being able to reap the, the carbon credits? Is that, I mean, how, what, what's, uh, how many households before you would actually be able to play in the carbon markets? Well, it's not necessarily a game uh, scale. It's a matter of getting um, the carbon market is like uh, it's its own secret society, you know, and it has its own sets of protocols. And so Indianary, for instance, spent a couple of years and a whole lot of money getting a particular protocol approved through the World Bank. And there are other carbon players in the carbon market that could work with companies like this to help them come up with a way of certifying that um, savings are genuinely being generated and uh, those can then be monetized. Unfortunately, like a lot of finance in the development world, the money all flows on the back end. (laughs) You got to spend all the time and money getting the protocols approved and then buy your stoves and build your pellet factory and sign up your customers and then document you know, that you've sold this many pellets to this many tens of thousands of households. And then after a year or two, some audit firm comes and verifies, yep, they, they do have these customers that they say they do. And we see this pellet factory and it's turning out this much. Well, now you're several years down the road and where you needed the money was on the front end to scale up all this stuff. Certainly, so, it certainly speaks to government, government support, NGO support, and the World Bank, what the World Bank has now a five hundred million dollar is it am I right cooking initiative? Is yeah, that, yeah. Can that be directed in the right direction? It is. It's it's starting. It's it's just starting. They haven't raised all five hundred yet, but they've gotten enough to start uh, funding some initiatives. But even a lot of those are flowing through um, things called results based finance, RBF, which is another piece of development jargon that is basically means do good deeds and get paid on the back end once you've proved that you got the results. Mm-hmm. And you can understand why they've done that because funders have been burned in the past by funding projects on the front end that then didn't deliver. So it seemed like a good idea to do results-based finance, but it turns out that it's really hard for entrepreneurs to get started and to scale when all the payoff is going to be on the back end. Right, right. Very interesting. Now, you mentioned I want to just talk about that pay-go model for solar because I became aware of that again when when we were in Africa and we saw all these little solar systems and I wondered how that was coming about. And there are these nifty little packages where you get a little panel and you get a, a few little LED lights and maybe a cell phone charger and yes, maybe a flat screen TV for in an advanced you know an advanced package. But that seems to be a really uh, effective model. And how does that work? It is, I'd say, a work in progress. I mean, um, how it works is that the deal is um, that someone who uh, lives in an off-grid environment gets approached by the salespeople from these firms who say, um, if you scribe, subscribe to this package, um, you know, we'll come and install all the equipment and you're going to be getting certain appliances from us and you pay us a monthly fee. Um, And that monthly fee is a combination of paying off the appliances, paying off the solar equipment and the energy services delivered. The problem with that sector is that unlike cooking, 
where people could be cash flow positive immediately. The off-grid solar business depends on actually getting people to spend more money on energy services than they had been before. So that's more, that's a more difficult sale. than Well, except that these companies have been very successful in raising capital. There's three or 400 million a year going into investment in these firms and they've become very good marketers and they're really kind of in the business now of selling appliances. Right. But they, and they, if they've got the private capital flowing to them, and I think what you would say is in the cook stove, you need some foundation money or some government support to, 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 to de-risk that investment, to set up these business models like Ingenieri, and then to have some support, initial seed support to de-risk that investment, and then the private sector support follows. I really wanted to ask you about, you know, IKEA's in the news and Rockefeller are in the news in the past couple of weeks because they've pledged now billion dollars. I don't know if you saw this. To, I didn't. For, for solar in the developing world. And, uh, and, and the whole purpose, the whole purpose in their press releases was they think that a billion dollars of their money can leverage $10, $10 billion uh, of private sector capital after, after it's de-risked. And I, I, is, is that really what we've got to do with your model there? And, and this, um, Eric yes. Reynolds yeah. model is to make, yeah. it, make it something that, you know, somebody in San Francisco or in Boulder or in New York could say, Hey, that's a good investment. I'll put my money there and I'm going to feel really good about it and get a good return. Yeah. And just to put in a plug, Ikea foundation was one of Indian Yeri's biggest supporters. Um, so they've done a lot of really fabulous stuff and um, they have been involved in the cooking sector, but a lot of foundations have stood back from the cooking sector because it's been so riddled with failure over time. But, but back to this pay-go thing, one, one thing that I think we'll see in the future is that the linkage, I think package bundling of the cooking solution with off-grid solar will be a real powerful, potent package because everybody has to cook every day. And if we can come up with a cash flow positive model for cooking solution, and guess what? That stove's battery was already being powered by a PV panel. So just bump up the size of the PV panel. And now these people can charge their cell phones and run a few LEDs for lighting. You're not as dependent then on selling them appliances that they want, but really can't afford. Do they really, they really want that TV screen. But what happens often is that once they get it, they realize I can't really afford it. And so, um, Michael, you're saying that there's a, there's going to be enough savings from the cooking to I think I think you're saying this to subsidize the the solar PV for the sort of the, that next step up in in, in um, quality of life, really. Yes, that wow. that I think cooking is the is the the what what's the is it the keystone in an arch. Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. I think cooking is a keystone and that there's not enough. um, There is, in fact, there is no monetary savings for these people that are signing up for these off-grid solar packages. They're, they're, they're spending more money than they used to, but it's not in livelihood creation. It's not, these aren't powerful enough systems that can fuel a little business, right? They fuel 
all they're powering is a few really low loads in a household. Improves these people's lives enormously. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not a good idea to do it. I'm just saying that I don't think fundamentally doing household level solar solutions is a long-term viable business. Well, it won't have the won't have the inherent the penetration that the the cooking already has. Everybody is everybody cooks. Everybody cooks, and so we're just going to do it in a better way. And if we could find a, I mean, this is. I, I came into this uh, podcast discussion being very discouraged by the state of the uh, the state of cooking and human exposure to cooking. But Michael, what I'm kind of coming out of this is realizing that there's some really, really cost-effective, environmentally health-effective solutions here, uh, and so it just leads me to back to you, and that you're you're just focused on this. You've created your nonprofit, uh, Heza. Is it Heza Earth or that's your... Yeah, yeah. Heza, uh, H-E-Z-A. And I had to have Earth on the domain name because someone else already had Heza. Uh, and so it's hezaearth.org. And it's my little passion project in trying to raise awareness of this issue and to focus attention in particular on these super clean, renewably powered solutions. Yeah. Not just the biomass gasification. That's what I'm... I'm starting on that, but I think clean electric is another really cool one. Ethanol has its place, biogas in the right settings. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm uh, really inspired to just kind of dig in on this one. Yeah, it's, it's your well, your voice of logic is uh, logic is is with you, and your voice is really clear and and compelling. So, wouldn't it be nice if the four billion of us that had uh, access to you know reliable electricity and clean cooking each gave a one of these gasification stoves to the four billion that that don't it would be a, a wonderful uh, interhemispheric exchange but, uh, well, which is one thing that i want to pursue with Haza is you think about groups like heifer international where people give a goat or a cow i want to set up some programs or i'm going to explore setting up programs where people could do exactly what you were saying is fund a family's cook stove or buy them a year's worth of pellet fuel um, and sponsor clean cooking for a family. And uh, whether there's enough public interest in this topic and I can reach that much of an audience remains to be seen. So I need to find additional channels like you, Ted, and your podcast. I would would say that you'll find tremendous public interest because we all have kids. And the thought of, of one of our kids standing next to a dirty, you know, dirty fire pit, you know, night after night uh, at mother's skirt, you know, hanging onto mother's skirts with all of that polluted air that that tugs at a lot of a lot of heartstrings. I, I, I think people just don't know about this. And I'll be the first to um, I agree. I'll be the first to admit that I felt I feel woefully uh, felt like woefully undereducated. Now I'm, I'm really glad I know. And please do sign me up when you start uh, doing the, the donations because I, I absolutely I think Love that's it. a clear-cut thing for to do. But Michael, um, thanks so much for this conversation. I've Great. totally enjoyed it, Ted. It's great to connect, and uh, let's uh, let's uh, talk again soon. Thank you very much. Bye bye. All right. Bye now. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the Net Positive. We'll see you next time.